last Monday morning, I went over to the Groovers, the house to pray with them before Ruby's surgery, and found out that she was going to have to stay the night. And so I asked if Keith or Annie were going to spend the night at the hospital, and Annie said that she was. And Ruby was obviously very excited about the thought of her mom spending the night with her uh, at the hospital for a little slumber party. Um, you know, when, when, when kids are younger, they don't, they don't like to be left alone, especially if it's in a strange environment or in a strange place. Uh, and, and so she's excited that, hey, my mom's going to be with me. Uh, kids don't want to be alone. But, but really, who, who does want to be left alone at the end of the day? I mean, even the, the introverts among us, we really we, we want some human contact from time to time with people we love. We don't want to be left totally alone. That's why when we go to a nursing home and we see someone whose family has just left them and never come back, that, that's why that hurts so badly to see that, that you ache for them. Uh, we, we fear for ourselves. What if, what if I'm in their shoes one day? What if, what if I'm the one who's left alone? I've mentioned, I, I think before, the television series our, our family has enjoyed called Alone. Uh, and it's basically about 12 people who were sent out into the Canadian wilderness and they're, they're sent out individually and they're, they're by themselves and they get to take like 10 items to try to survive and you have to live off the land for as long as you can make it with no human contact. And whoever stays the longest gets, I think it's $500,000. And everybody goes into it all fired up, I can do this, and they just start dropping like flies. And it's not mainly because they don't have survival skills. Often they pick people with great survival skills. It's because they can't handle being alone. They can't handle being alone. And it just wears on them. And they, they, even the ones that make it, obviously some are better than others, it wears on them and they start to unravel from all that time alone. Because we're not designed to be alone. God created Adam and then he says it's not good for man to be alone and so he creates Eve. You think even of the Trinity, God himself is not a solitary, lonely God, but has existed for all eternity in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, in this text we're going to read this morning, Jesus, for the first time ever, for the first time ever, finds himself truly alone. Why? And what does that have to do with us? Well, let's, let's read it and we're going to talk about it. This is, this is God's Word, Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming into the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots from them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the centurion of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Excuse me. And the curtain of the temple. That would have been eventful. (laughs) And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, weighty text, uh, weighty day, uh, central to, to our faith and to the faith of many others. Pray that you help me to, to handle this well, as you would speak to us in spite of my sin, in spite of my inadequacy, as you would speak to us and show us Christ crucified, that you might grant us eyes of faith to confess with the centurion that truly this is the Son of God. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, why was Jesus ultimately at the end of the day alone here? I, I think you'll find the answer to that question in, in three words in our text. I want to use a picture for us. And the three words are this, darkness, a curtain, and a centurion. I know those don't seem very related at the moment, but bear with me. Darkness, a curtain, and the centurion. First of all, darkness. Jesus was alone because of darkness. Jesus was alone because of darkness. What do I mean by that? Verse 33 tells us that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, which would have been roughly from around noon to three in the afternoon, that darkness covered the land. And this wasn't just a a natural darkness. Uh, Solar eclipses don't happen when the moon is full at Passover. Uh, A dust storm isn't likely during what would have been their wet spring season. Now the darkness that Mark describes for us is a supernatural darkness that had descended on the land. Uh, it's a supernatural darkness that's best understood as a sign of judgment. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, the book of Exodus, God sends a plague of darkness against Egypt. In the book of Amos, the prophet speaks of judgment, the day of judgment coming that is characterized by darkness, saying this, In that day I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. The Old Testament very much associated darkness with the judgment of God. But who's being judged here? Why is darkness descending on the land? Was it the disciples? Are they being judged for abandoning Jesus? Are the religious authorities being judged because they've rejected Jesus? Are the soldiers being judged because they've tortured Jesus? No, Jesus is being judged. Jesus is coming under judgment, the judgment and the condemnation of God. Jesus is the one plunging into the darkness. A darkness that reaches its climax in verse 34. My God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Robert Murray McShane, commenting on this passage, is writes that Jesus was literally at the bottom of the sea. Christ was now beneath a deeper sea than that which covered Jonah. He was under a sea of God's wrath. He was in utter darkness. He was in hell. Uh, think about it. Jesus, who had, he had, he had known his Father's love for all eternity. And at this moment in time, he's abandoned. He's left completely alone in the dark. In the dark. You know, it's, it's one thing to be left alone in the Canadian wilderness for a few days. It's another thing to be left alone on the cross. Cut off from the love of the Father that you've known for eternity and instead experiencing nothing but His wrath. Why? Why is Jesus, a man who never sinned, uh, why is Jesus being cut off from His Father? Why is He experiencing the judgment uh, and the condemnation and the wrath God, why is he alone? I think one way to look at this is to realize that he's alone because aloneness is the natural trajectory of sin. Aloneness is the natural trajectory of sin. In Beauty and the Beast, Mr. Clocksworth is one of the characters who's under a curse. uh, And he's been turned into a clock. And he says at one point in the movie that he feels himself, as time goes on, he feels himself becoming less and less and I think that fits nicely with C.S. Lewis's description of the hell where he says, uh, eventually there will be almost nothing left of you but simply a grumble that goes on forever and ever. Sin causes us to deteriorate physically, emotionally, spiritually. And I think part of that unraveling is that sin ultimately leaves us alone. There's an Avid Brothers song, I Killed Sally's Lover, which is one of those uh, fun, murderous folk songs. Um, and they sing, Sally's been laying with another man, so I put him in his grave. And so you think, well, the next line is going to be, so I wound up back with Sally again. But instead, it's, no, I wound up in the penitentiary. And I didn't really accomplish anything. And, and I'm ultimately left alone. Sin turns us against God. Sin is us saying to God, I don't need you in my life. I can manage this. I've got this on my own. And the worst thing that can happen to your your eyes for God is say, okay, I'll leave you alone. I'll leave you alone. Uh, Think about it. When you break, when you and I break any of the the commandments, especially think about the second table of the law when we murder or commit adultery or when we steal, the breaking of those commandments damages our relationships with other people. Uh, It's kind of like we're connected to other people by a rope that is these commandments of God. God. And and the more we sin, the more we break these commandments, it's like we're jumping up and down on these ropes that connect us to other people. And and these ropes begin to fray and disconnect so that the more we sin, the more we're disconnected from other people and the more we're ultimately left alone. When you think about it, even the way, if there's a criminal we want to punish, but we're not quite ready to put them to death, what do we do? We put them in solitary confinement. We leave them alone. The natural course of sin, I think, when it's left around its course, is that it leaves us alone. 
Uh, and you may say, okay, I can see that. But why is Jesus left alone? Jesus was a good guy, right? He, he healed the lame. Uh, he, he healed lepers. He forgave sin. Uh, he was always hanging out with kind of the, the people on the margins of society and trying to love them. He didn't sin. There's no spiral of destruction going on in his life. Why is Jesus there? Why is Jesus alone? Why is Jesus being judged? He's there because he's acting as a substitute. He's there because he's bearing the sin of his people. He's taking their sin for them. Uh, Mark 10, verse 45, pointed us to this. Jesus told us that he had come, why? To give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5.21, looking back, the Apostle Paul says, For our sake God made Him, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus is at the cross taking on himself the just penalty for sin, the just judgment of God so that we don't have to. Uh, in the movie Grand Torino, Clint Eastwood play, plays a uh, retired Korean war veteran who's living in this deteriorating neighborhood of Detroit. And over the course of the movie, he becomes friends with a, a young boy in the neighborhood, a young teenager who lives next door and develops sort of a relationship with him uh, this young, this teenager's sister is assaulted by a local gang. And he's getting ready to go and to try to take revenge for his sister. And Clint Eastwood knows that this kid can't handle a gun. And he knows that he's only going to get himself killed. So he tricks the kid and he locks him in the basement of his house. And Clint Eastwood goes to the gang member's house. And he calls him out on the porch. And if you've never seen the movie and want to, want to see the movie, this is a good time to quit listening to me for a second. But he, but, he, but, he, but he calls them out on the porch, and as they come out, and as they're watching, he does this to every one of them. And then as they're watching, he reaches his hand into his jacket pocket, and they immediately think he's got a gun, and he's going to shoot at them, and so they all unload on him. And they kill Clint Eastwood there. And, he, and as it, the scene ends, he falls back. And he falls into his shape of a cross. And it turns out he was reaching for a cigarette lighter. But he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And everyone is seeing now the gang members and what they have done. They'll be found guilty for killing Clint Eastwood. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was giving up his life. In some sense, he was doing it to atone, tried to try to atone for his own sins. But he was also doing it, he was giving up his life to save the life of his young friend. He was going to die in his place. He was going to die so his friend would live. Jesus knew what he was doing when he was going to Jerusalem. It wasn't an accident. Jesus knew that if we were going to be free, that if our sins were going to be forgiven, if our lives were going to be changed, that he would have to get it, he would have to die in our place. He would have to die not to atone for his sin, but to atone for our sin. He would have to enter the darkness alone. 
Picture number one is darkness. Picture number two is a curtain. Curtain. In verse 38, as Jesus died, we read this. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what's with a curtain? Mark doesn't specify whether this is the, uh, which curtain this is, whether this is the, the, the curtain over the entrance to the holy place or the next curtain a little further in over the entrance to the holy of holies. Most people think it's probably the second. But either way, I think the point that he's making is the same. Uh, the idea is that Jesus is now ripped open the curtain and granted ex- access for us to come in to meet with this holy God. No longer does a priest have to stay, have to go in, take a sacrifice, and go in on our behalf to atone for our sin, because Jesus has gone in and opened the way for us. Now, Hebrews ten puts it this way: Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. Why? Why did God, why was God's judgment poured out on Jesus? Why did Jesus wrap himself in our sin and take the judgment of God? It's so that the way could be open for us to come back into a relationship with God. So that we could know him and ultimately come ourselves into his presence. Uh, the Bible teaches that because of our sin, the way to God is blocked for us. It's like a, a rock slide on I-40 north of Asheville. There, there's no getting through that. In fact, we don't want God. We can't get to God. We don't want God. And yet we find ourselves on this continual hunt for a God replacement. Something to fill that void. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, young man, the young man who knocks on the door of a brothel is unconsciously looking for God. We find ourselves bouncing from one addiction to the next, from one pursuit to the next. Something to satisfy us, something to give us control, something to give us pleasure, something that's going to free us from worry. And their song, Roll Away My Stone, Mumford and Sons, saying, You told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul. And I have filled this void with things unreal. And all the while, my character is stills. Darkness is a harsh term, don't you think? And yet it dominates the things I see. It seems that all my bridges have been burnt. But you say, that's exactly how this grace thing works. I I fill my soul with, with things that aren't God. I fill my soul with things that are God's substitutes. And they don't they never fill the void. Instead, what they do is they steal my character and I descend into darkness. And so what hope is there for me? I've burned all my bridges through doing this. There's no way back to God. And then they sing, that's exactly how this grace thing works. Grace is about God making the way. Not through something we do, but through the very sacrifice of His Son. Uh, I, I was watching a clip from a movie called The Bridge the other night, and there's a lot that's not very theologically accurate about this scene, but I think it makes makes the bigger point that I want to get across here. Uh, in the scene, there's a father who's a drawbridge operator. 
Uh, it's a drawbridge over a river, and there's a boat that's coming through, so the drawbridge is up. And there's a train coming. The train's coming too soon. And the bridge is not going to be down in time unless somebody closes it right now. The father's not really paying attention because the train's early. But the son, is, he's like six or seven years old, he sees the train coming, and he's waving, trying to get his father's attention. And he can't get his father's attention. And so he goes and he reaches in to try to manually pull the lever to, to make the drawbridge come back down. And when he does this, he falls into the gears, the area where the gears are of the, of the drawbridge. And about this time, as he's falling in, the father's standing there, and he sees the son fall in, and he looks and he sees the train coming. And he knows that he's got to make a choice. Because there's no time to go to rescue his son and save people on the train. And so he has to make the decision to push the lever and let the drawbridge down at the cost of the life of his son. And it's, it's terrifying uh, to watch and try to imagine uh, what everyone in that scene is going through. And, and, and look, Jesus didn't just kind of fall onto the cross by accident. Uh, in an attempt to save us when his father wasn't paying attention to what was going on. But it's even more amazing than that. The father and the son from all eternity planned this. That this is how we're going to rescue our people. That the son will come and be willingly ground up in the gears of divine justice. Because that was the only way to save his people. That was the only way to lower the drawbridge as it were so that we it was the only way to tear open the curtain so that we could come into the presence of God. Darkness, a curtain, and then finally a centurion. A centurion. Jesus was alone to take our darkness. Jesus was alone in order to open up a way through the curtain. Jesus was alone so that that way would be opened up to all. To all people. Uh, regardless of your race or nationality or, or gender, uh, regardless of, of where you live, regardless of what you've done in the past, Jesus has opened up this way for all types of people. Now, Mark, in Mark chapter 1, if you can remember that far back when we first started this, in Mark chapter 1, he begins his gospel this way, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then what Mark does for 15 chapters is he makes the case that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But if you'll notice, through those 15 chapters, Mark never records anyone saying that he's the Son of God. It's announced at the beginning, and then right here at the, the, the very end, he puts these words on the lips of someone else. And the first person to confess that Jesus is the Son of God it's a Roman centurion. A, a Roman centurion. The guy that was most likely there in charge of what had just taken place, in charge of the beating and the, the torturing and the death of Jesus, a hardened pagan Roman centurion. And he's the one that says, surely this man was the son of God. What happened there? We don't know for sure, but, but evidently that centurion saw something that he hadn't seen before. He'd seen a lot of people executed in this way. And he normally didn't die the way Jesus died. Normally it took a couple of days for you to die. It was a slow, suffocating death. 
And yet, and you, you didn't go out with a cry at the head. You went out with a quiver. Yet here is Jesus uh, freely giving his life. In verse 37, he cries out with a loud voice and simply dies. And the centurion saw something in that. In the crucifixion. In the events surrounding the crucifixion. To convince him that indeed Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And so I think what Mark is doing here is he's leaving that question hanging for us. I've been making the case. I told you this is the Son of God. I've been showing you this is the Son of God. And now here's the centurion confessing that indeed this is the Son of God. Now I pose the question to you. Who do you say? Jesus. Will you recognize that this is no ordinary death. Would you recognize that Jesus is the Son of God? Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Just a good man? Just a great prophet? Just kind of this interesting religious guy that a lot of people follow for some reason? Uh, a couple other C.S. Lewis quotes. He's got an essay where, in which he writes, We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. Like nobody that saw Jesus others oh, is a moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects: hatred, terror, or adoration. There were no traces, he writes, of people expressing simply mild approval of Jesus. And then his more famous quote from Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Uh, then the, the novelist Anne Rice, who left the church as a college student, married an atheist, and then eventually came back to the faith, writes this, kind of her struggle in, in, in coming back. She said, having started with the skeptical critics, those who take their cue from the earliest skeptical New Testament scholars of the Enlightenment, I expected to discover that their arguments would be frighteningly strong and that Christianity was at heart a kind of fraud. I'd have to end up compartmentalizing my mind with faith in one part of it and truth in another. These skeptical scholars seem so very sure of themselves, they built their books on certain assumptions without even examining these assertions. What gradually became clear to me was that many of the skeptical arguments, arguments that insisted most of the Gospels were suspect, for instance, or written too late to the eyewitness accounts, lacked coherence. They were not elegant. Arguments about Jesus himself were full of conjecture. Some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Absurd conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. In some, the whole case for the non-divine Jesus 
who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified by nobody and had nothing to do with the founding of Christianity and would be horrified by it if he knew about it. That whole picture which had floated in the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I've ever read. C.S. Lewis, Anne Rice, uh, and then I'll close with George Clooney. Um, George Clooney plays a, a character in the, in the movie Hell Caesar by the Coen brothers. And in the movie, he's playing an actor. And this actor is playing the centurion standing before the cross. And they're, so they're, they're acting out this scene, which we've just read this morning. And so Clooney comes in and he kneels before the cross. And the centurion with him says... Why are you kneeling before this Hebrew? While I encountered him beside the well, what manner of man is he? He's a priest of the Israelites, despised even by the other priests. Not on yesterday's march, punished by the dust of the road, I sought to drink first of the well before the slaves in my charge, whose thirst was far greater than my own. While well, a Roman drinks before a slave, this man was giving water to all. He saw no Roman. He saw no slave. He saw only men, weak men, and gave them water. He saw suffering which he sought to ease. He saw sin and gave love. Love? He saw my own sin and greed, but in his eyes I saw no shadow of reproach. I saw only the light and love of God. You mean the gods. I do not, my friend. This Hebrew is the son of the one God, the God of this far-flung tribe. Why shouldn't God's anointed appear here among these strange people to shoulder their sins in this sun-drenched land? Why should he not take this form, the form of an ordinary man, a man not bringing his old truths, but a new one? A new truth? A truth beyond the truth we can see. A truth beyond this world. A truth not told in words, but in life. A truth that we could see if we only had. And then he stumbles. And he can't remember the lie. And someone yells, if we only had faith. If we only had faith. Maybe there's something compelling to you about Jesus. But you're stumbling over this faith thing. Where do I find faith? Well, where do you find faith? Where do you find faith that Jesus is the Son of God? Where do you find faith that Jesus can actually forgive your sins? You don't find that faith by looking inside yourself. You find that faith by looking at the darkness and looking at the curtain and by looking with the centurion at the cross. You find faith by looking at Jesus. Will you look at Him? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that uh, the centurion's confession would be our confession. That we would look at the darkness that we deserve that we would look at the curtain that has been torn open so that we might come to you. And that we would look at Jesus on the cross and see him dying there for us because he loved us. And that, Father, that might awaken, strengthen, 
our faith today. We pray it in Jesus' name.